Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, December the 16th, 2023, as the year comes to an end. Uh, lots of evaluation, re-evaluation of what happened this year. Uh, in my other show, How to Fix Democracy, which is supported by the Washington, D.C.-based Bertelsmann Foundation, we've been doing a series on the state of American democracy, the history of American democracy. Of course, 2023 has been an interesting year for American democracy, and 2024 will be an even more interesting one. When it comes to democracy, it would seem as if 2023 hasn't been a terrible year. Donald Tusk, for example, was elected as Polish prime minister, a challenge to the growth or the reestablishment of authoritarianism, uh, illiberal democracy, whatever you want to call it, in uh, in Europe. Uh, the Guardian described uh, Tusk's election as uh, the nightmare being over, but that's not the only story of democracy in 2023. It's been a checkered year, a year of uh, ambivalence, and somebody who knows that all too well is my guest, uh, Kevin uh, Kazas. Zamora, who is the secretary general of a group called International IDEA, that IDEA stands for Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance. It's based in uh, uh, Stockholm, and Kevin um, is originally from Costa Rica. There are a group, uh, a nonprofit, supporting democracy worldwide. They're very much focused on uh, providing assistance for the development of democracy. And they do an annual report, the Global State of Democracy Initiative. I thought it'd be interesting to get Kevin onto the show to talk about the global state of democracy in 2023. The executive summary of his recent report suggests that uh, its state in 2023 was complex, fluid, and unequal. Uh, Kevin, Welcome. Uh, he's joining us from Washington, D.C., where he's presenting his report. Uh, Kevin, does that mean that you're, you and, and everybody else are kind of scratching their head and we still can't quite figure out whether 2023 was a good or a bad year for democracy? Well, thank you for having me, Andrew. It's a, it's a pleasure. It, the story that our report tells, and it's a report that we publish every year, it came out, the latest iteration of the report came out about a month ago. And as you said, it's a complex one. But generally speaking, it's not good. Generally speaking, is a is a story defined by the very strong headwinds that democracy is facing pretty much everywhere. And not in the same way in all places, but it's a, it's a global story. And therefore, it calls for global responses. You know, the old notion that the problems of democracy were to be found in young and poor democracies is no longer true. You only have to see what has happened over the past few years in the U.S. or in very proud members of the European Union to realize that this is a global, a global story. Uh, just to give you a couple of factoids that suggest how serious the situation is, uh, in our measurements, uh, this is the sixth consecutive consecutive year uh, that more countries have 
uh, seen a deterioration in democratic performance uh, than countries that have seen progress. This is the longest sequence since we have data for uh, our data starts back in 1975. This is the longest sequence of regression. Uh, number one and number two, uh, if you take the entire group of countries that is covered by the report, uh, 173 of them, uh, uh, half of them at this point have seen a deterioration, uh, a very serious deterioration in at least one key element of democracy. It might be the ability to hold credible elections. It might be in other places, a judicial independence that is waning. It might be the ability of civil society to operate and you know, demand things from, from public officials. It, you know, it might be different things in different places, but at least one key element of democracy has seen a very grave deterioration in half of the countries covered by the report. I think that a decade ago, this uh, proportion was less than 20%. So that tells you not simply the way the winds are blowing, but also how widespread the, the process of deterioration of democracy has become and how rapid it is, uh, it is advancing. I want to break it down regionally. I know your report does, but Kevin, what about the growth of neo-authoritarianism? Lots of people use different terms to describe it. Uh, Trump, of course, is exhibit A on this, and he'll be running for election in a supposed democratic election next year in America. Uh, Orban in, in Hungary, even people like Maloney in, in Italy and Le Pen in France. Do you consider this growth of authoritarianism to be antithetical, almost an existential challenge to democracy? Or, or do we have to take them case by case? Is, someone like Maloney quite different from Trump or Orban or even Putin? Uh, there are differences uh, between them uh, for, for sure, but there's a global story happening. I mean, this is happening, you know, with different flavors uh, just about uh, everywhere. Uh, you know, this is not random. Um, there are many things that, that go into, into this. I think, one of the big stories happening with democracy globally is this very entrenched perception that democracy is not resolving in an efficacious way growing social demands. I mean, in a way, what we are seeing is, a, a, you know, that social demands and social expectations are growing exponentially everywhere, a, whereas the capacities of governments to uh, to give responses to those expectations and those demands are barely growing, if at all. It is this ever-growing gap where monsters are bred, including the monster of, of populism. And populism is a is a is an intellectual shortcut, a political shortcut that offers very easy solutions to problems that are surely very complicated. I mean, that's, you know, where populists get get their, their fuel from, you know, the perception that democracy is not resolving, uh, resolving problems to, to people. But one has to be very careful because, uh, look, we may like or may not like 
populism and, and, you know, characters like Trump or Orban, but they're a symptom of something. And we have to take that symptom and the causes of the, of the problem very seriously. And self-evidently, there's a lot of people out there that feel that they're being left behind. Uh, th that's one big part of the story. And to that, I would add another reflection, which is that in some ways, Andrew, this is a asymmetric a rhetorical warfare because it, people like Trump or Orban uh, or others, uh, that have appeared in other in other places, Bolsonaro, eh, Erdogan. I mean, all those guys, and, and it's always men, by the way. You know, I use the you know a guy in a very you know I take that point. Although Maloney, of course, isn't isn't male, and nor no, is yeah, 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 yeah. But it, 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 you're right, you're right. But the vast majority of them are are. Are, are men. Uh, I was saying that this is an asymmetric rhetorical warfare because all those populist projects with different measures of authoritarian uh, intentions, they appeal to the gut of people. They appeal to forces like nationalism. They appeal to tribalism in a way the liberal democracy doesn't. Liberal democracy is a very rational creed. A liberal democracy tells us that we belong to a community because we are equal in rights. And that's a wonderful idea and it's a powerful idea, but it's a very rational creed. It doesn't appeal to your gut, except in those places where democracy breaks down. Then you see a really visceral reaction on the part of people standing up for democracy and standing up for their rights standing up for the right to participate. But when democracy becomes normalized, as it is the case in places like the US, in Western Europe, in my own country, in Costa Rica, people stop caring about this stuff. People stop, uh, you know, this, this becomes part of your lot, part of, your, of the landscape that surrounds you. Uh, and this is challenge when someone comes along and appeals to your gut. And we know from uh, our experience that in a in a in a fight between uh, reason and 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 the gut, uh, whoever has very intense feelings in the gut prevails nine times out of ten. So this is a major, major issue. I mean, we have to make people care about democracy and be conscious that democracy is truly one of the pinnacles of the human experience that we have an obligation to protect. We are speaking with Kevin Casasamora, the Secretary General of International IDEA, International IDEA, a group, a nonprofit dedicated to studying and promoting democracy around the world. Uh, Kevin, you were born in Costa Rica, um, but your organization is based in Stockholm. You live there, so you know Sweden all too well. I wish we could use Sweden as the model for reason versus gut. But of course, even in Sweden, you have a, a strong uh, neo-authoritarian 
movement, uh, large changes in the political system. I wonder whether much of this is bound up in the issue of immigration. All, all the authoritarians you mentioned, or neo-authoritarians from Trump to Orban, they all say, seem to be running on the idea of hostility to immigrants and foreigners of one kind or another. Can one believe in democracy and be opposed to immigration? Uh, why, why are those two things antithetical? Uh, there's no reason why people should simply open their boundaries. Uh, we may not like Trump, but the yep. problem, the crisis of immigration, illegal and legal other, or otherwise in the United States, is a very, very real one. It, look, there, there are several things to, to that question. Um, uh, first of all, this uh, strong reactions elicited by the issue of, of immigration, legal or illegal, or however it may be, is very much visible in Western Europe, in the US. It's not so much the case in, in places like Latin America. I mean, in Latin America, populism increasingly is connected to perceptions of corruption. So it's a different, it's a slightly different kind of animal. But it, 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 that being the case, it, it, the issue of immigration is a, it's a truly important one, partly because it's a symptom of something bigger, which is, which I, I also think is a big part of the story, which is the sense of, that things are changing very rapidly, that society is changing in extraordinarily profound and rapid ways, in ways that engender a sense in many people that they have lost control over their fate. And this is a crucial part of this story, and it's a very complicated one, because I have the impression that when, when levels of social uncertainty the uncertainty generated by rapid change, it, when levels of social uncertainty go through the roof, it, we, we tend to behave like children. And we, we run to seek the embrace of uh, paternal authoritarian figures. And there are many, many, many historical precedents of levels of social uncertainty leading to authoritarian responses. You know, think, for example, about the, the collapse of democracy in interwar Europe. Isn't that rather, uh, some people are going to be listening to this, Kevin, thinking this is just another classic elite guy, a PhD from Oxford, living in Stockholm, mm -hmm. earning lots of money, traveling around the world, talk uh, in a very patronizing way, suggesting that people behave like children in a, in a globalized right. economic system where there is enormous churn and change, where many people don't have your privilege or for that matter, my privilege. Uh, don't, don't we need to be a little bit more careful of suggesting that people uh, behave like children when they, when they vote? No, I mean, I'm, I'm not meaning, I, I don't mean this in a judgmental way. I mean it- Well, you do I when mean, you say they behave like children. You're, you're suggesting that that's not judgmental. No, no, we do. I mean, we do. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I, I'm part of that, of that sense of this combination that we all feel in the in the face of rapid change. Uh, I'm not exempt from from that at all. 
uh, I think it's a very it's a very human response to to uncertainty. And as I as I said, I mean I don't mean this uh, as a judgmental thing. It's a factual statement. I mean there are many historical precedents uh, for 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 this. So I don't blame people for feeling. I think there are very real uh, reasons for feeling that the society around you is changing in in very disconcerting ways. So I I don't I don't mean to be patronizing. Quite to the contrary, when I said before that uh, we shouldn't reject and dismiss and disdain populism outright. It's because populism is a symptom of something. It's a symptom of this kind of thing, precisely. So it's it's a it's a huge issue, you know, how we mitigate the sources of this uncertainty that a lot of people are feeling pretty much everywhere. It's a complex story, the story of democracy uh, in 2023, and certainly it will be in 2024. I want to remind everyone that when it comes to complex stories, uh, our sponsor, Liberty, is a quarterly journal of culture and politics. It does a very good job dealing with the different complexities in its essay form. Going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with uh, Kevin to break down the state of democracy in 2023. I want to talk about his own uh, region, Latin America, the United States, Europe, East and West Asia. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be talking more democracy, more 2023 in a couple of seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Kevin Casas-Samora, the Stockholm-based Secretary General of International IDEA, a group dedicated to studying and promoting democracy. Uh, Kevin, as I suggested, you're originally from uh, Latin America, from the beautiful country of Costa Rica. You're a real expert on this. You had a very interesting uh, op-ed in the New York Times uh, earlier this year on the failure of democracy in Latin America. You you noted earlier that um, the crisis of democracy in Latin America is more bound up with corruption um, mm-hmm. than in anti-immigrant feeling. What is uh, the state of democracy uh, in Latin America uh, in 2023? How would you make sense of it? Look, it depends on the on the time scale that you use. I mean, when you compare the situation now with what was the case, I don't know, 40 years ago, there has been enormous progress. When you compare, however, the situation today with the situation five or ten years ago, the story is very different. And what we are seeing all over the region is 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 a very significant deterioration in the quality of democracy, which you can see in different ways. You can see that in the proliferation of 
populist authoritarian discourses in places like Brazil, to some extent Mexico. Uh, El Salvador is a very clear-cut case and a very interesting one. And, you know, I, I, for those of you that care about democracy, pay attention to El Salvador because this is a case that in a very disturbing way exemplifies uh, an attempt on the part of a populist leader it, to dismantle democracy it, almost completely and very rapidly with full popular support because President Bukele has been able to resolve and, and be seen to be resolving the crucial issue that, has, that was weighing people down in El Salvador, the issue of crime. And he did that in a very brutal way uh, with no respect for human rights uh, tenets whatsoever. But people don't seem to care. People don't seem to care. And I, and once again, in this case, I don't mean that in a patronizing way. I fully understand why they uh, hold Bukele in high esteem because he has managed in their eyes to solve a problem that democratic previous democratic governments governments were not able to solve so the strong so, man is able so, to terrorize what gangs corruption or at least perceived to terrorize gangs and corruption and the interesting and disturbing thing andrew is that in the case of el salvador and i'm pretty sure that this is more widespread because one of the fascinating things that is happening is that bukele coming from such a small country like el salvador has become a feature in political debates all over latin america uh, the thing is that people don't seem to care. I mean, people are willing to give up on basic democratic tenets, on checks and balances, on, on, on human rights. If someone comes along that is seen to solve real issues for real people. And that goes to the core of this story. I mean, I guess this goes back to some of the things that I said before, that the, the perception that democracy is not solving uh, those real problems is a is a hugely important part of this of this story. Uh, if if democracies are not able to solve problems, people give up on them. You know, it, it ultimately, look. I mean, you and I can have a very long conversation about the normative case for democracy and how democracy, you know, respects the dignity of people. All those things are true. But for 98% of people out there, the proof of the pie is in the eating. And if democracy is not able to, to deliver, a, it will live dangerously. And it is living dangerously. In wait, wait, wait. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Moises Naim, uh, the very much so. Venezuelan uh, finance minister, now a very distinguished political scientist, analyst. He speaks to as to Latin America as the future, particularly Venezuela, in this descent into complete chaos. What would you make of Venezuela? Is it a one-off, or, or or might it be a warning for for all of us in terms of the future? I think there's a there's a warning coming out of Latin America, but it's not necessarily connected to Venezuela. Venezuela is a very extreme case. I think the the utter collapse that we've seen in Venezuela politically, economically, in terms of public safety, in terms, in, incredibly, in terms of the energy policies, it, it, all, I mean, across the board, 
the collapse that we've seen in Venezuela, we haven't seen the like of uh, ever before in Latin America. I mean, it's a, it's a fairly unique case in a, in a pretty dire way. Where I see a warning coming out of Latin America is in the following way. Uh, what you see increasingly, or let me say, what we have seen over the recent past in Latin America is the emergence of what a very distinguished political scientist, late political scientist from Argentina, Guillermo O'Donnell, used to call low-intensity democracies. That is, democracies that are defined by poor protection of basic rights, that are defined by very poor checks and balances, that are defined by a pervasive impunity, a, that are defined by pervasive inequality, low-intensity democracies. I used to think that those low-intensity democracies, those highly imperfect democracies of Latin America, that one sees in Latin America, were gradually, you know, very, in a very tentative way, were advancing and were moving towards a different sort of political equilibrium, a healthier political equilibrium of the sort that you see in Western Europe or in North America. Well, it so happens that the opposite it appears to be happening, that the deterioration in the quality of democracy, even in highly developed places, suggests that the low-intensity democracies of Latin America offer a glimpse of the future for the world. Uh, and trust me, uh, that Latin America may offer a glimpse of the future for the world does not cannot be counted as good news. That's what really, really terrifies me. Where's the good news, Kevin, uh, in the report? Uh, you have a section on Africa. In the past, there's been some good news. Again, in the, the story yeah. of democracy in Africa, it's a large continent. Many countries is checkered. But is there good news coming out of Africa in terms of the development of, of democracy, of course, Africa hasn't always traditionally been associated as a continent in, in terms of the home of democracy. But are we seeing some positive developments in some African countries? In discrete places, in discrete places. I mean, I can, I can point to a few places. Zambia is, a, is a, one of the good news over the past two or three years, ever since they had a, a landmark election that went well and uh, they've been making very good strides. Gambia, a country, a very small country in, in West Africa that has become a democratic success story, still very poor and institutions are frail. But it, again, as a result of a landmark election in 2016, they embarked on a process of democratic transition that has made real, real strides. I mean, a couple of months ago, I, I was in Ghana uh, Ghana is a country that is doing, politically speaking, very well. I mean, it has uh, solid institutions. It has really, you know, uh, something to work with. Uh, participation levels uh, across Africa are very robust. And I, you know, you asked me for, for good news, uh, not just in Africa, but globally, 
the the single most important piece of good news that comes from the pages of the report is the fact that the the component of participation and civic activism is very vibrant and very robust and this is something that we we saw even during the pandemic you know even during the pandemic despite the often draconian restrictions. Yeah, you call it participation, and I'm quoting, the most encouraging category was participation, where scores remain surprisingly high, even in countries with a low level of democratic performance that's, and institutional. That's correct. Is, is there a tech element here? Are people simply used to commenting on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and so? Oh, they not just, just that. I think that helps. I mean, one of the whatever other drawbacks social media can have, and, and there are plenty of things that are detrimental to democracy, it does lower the, the barriers uh, to collective action. So it's been used in many places to great, to great effect. I mean, not simply to express an opinion and to you know uh, post things on, on Twitter or Facebook, but no, no, to organize, you know, for civil society to organize itself and, and go out on the street and demand things. It is more that. It is the ability of civil society to, to remain active, to be able to organize, to demand things, to, to stand up for their rights as they see them, you know. And, and even during the pandemic, you know, people were... About 80% of countries saw demonstrations of different kinds. I mean, many of them embracing causes that, that I don't agree with, but the fact that people were willing to stand up for their rights as they mm -hmm. see them should count as good news. And well, that is good news. Kevin, your, your report breaks Asia down into Western Asia. Middle East. Uh, and Asia and the Pacific. Um, yeah. We've done a number of shows on China. In fact, uh, I've got Kishore uh, Mabubani on the show next uh, next week, who's a proponent, I guess, of the Chinese model, although maybe it's not quite as explicit. He's Singapore-based. Is there an alternative model, uh, an authoritarian model being developed in China? China, of course, now is a world power with an economy increasingly competitive and larger than the United States. China is investing all over the world, particularly in, in, in Africa and in other developing parts of the world. Are the Chinese developing an alternative model to democracy, an authoritarianism, uh, a centralized technocratic system that offers an alternative to the, the Anglo-American democratic or Anglo-American European model of democracy? A few things about that. Well, first of all, the Anglo-American uh, model of democracy is not the only one. I mean, one of the things that we uh, always say at IDEA is that democracy comes in different shapes. And, uh, you know, one has to be sensitive to those, to those uh, differences. I mean, one, uh, one of the mistakes that has been made many times in the past over the past I don't know three or four decades is the idea that the West has to you know go out on a crusade to impose a certain model of democracy onto mm. the rest no, of the I world. I take and your point is, on, on that. But what a, about the Chinese model? No, but I but I you know I'll I'll get to that point. I think uh, to your question, 
is this uh, an alternative model? Uh, the Chinese claim it is, and they have been of late very, very explicit about that. Uh, look, the problem with that is that uh, this goes back to the issue of what the case for democracy is, right? One of the single most important assets, one of the single most important attributes of democracy, it's its capacity to self-correct. I mean, when you live in a democracy, if you don't like the people that are in power, if you don't agree with their policies, you know that you're going to get, you know, in four or five years time, you're going to get a chance to throw the rascals out and, and correct the course of public policy with a little bit of luck. Um, that's not the way authoritarian systems work. In, so authoritarian systems are a little bit like playing the roulette. I mean, if you're very lucky, you might end up with Lee Kuan Yew running the show uh, and you do great. You do fantastically well. Uh, but if you're not so lucky, and most people that live under an authoritarian system are not that lucky, you might end up with Idi Amin or Pol Pot running the show or Nicolas Maduro running the show. And you're locked in the room with Idi Amin or with Nicolas Maduro without any possibility of changing course whatsoever. That's the problem. And where does Xi fit in to that spectrum between uh, I, Idi Amin I, and, and Lee Kuan Yew in, in Singapore? Well, I would claim that in terms of the of the out of the outputs of the system it is probably closer to Lee Kuan Yew uh, and it, it, the fact that a country of the size of China and of the importance of China uh, does relatively does rather well in terms of of outputs it introduces a huge distortion in this discussion because the fact of the matter is that most authoritarian systems are not like the Chinese like the Chinese model. I mean, they are far more clumsy and far more brittle than the Chinese. The brittle Chinese and model. brutal, right? Brittle and brutal, yeah. And because the, the other thing is, I mean, like, uh, uh, Andrew, like, uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the, the, the famous French writer, used to say, uh, humankind is not simply a herd that needs to be fed. Uh, you know, regardless of the of the outputs of the Chinese system, I wouldn't want to live in such a place um, for many reasons. Right. So, although, right. Yeah. I, I don't think either of us would. Although, you know, it's I'm not sure how what what that says one way or the other. Let, let's briefly look ahead to 2024, uh, Kevin. The dominant event is the U.S. election. A um, sure. couple of questions on that to wrap up. If uh, it, do you agree that the the dominant event for 2024 for democracy in the world is the U.S. election? And if Trump is indeed elected, as it seems reasonably likely, and in in, uh, in terms of the polls, um, and he, he's been fairly explicit in a shift towards authoritarianism. He's made it clear that on day one he won't be a Democrat. How important do you think this election is, not just for the United States, but for democracy around the world? I think 2024 is going to be a very important year. I mean, bear in mind that there are elections happening all over the world in 
not just in the U.S. I'll get to the U.S. election in a second, but it is, of course, the election in the U.S. There are elections happening in India, in South Africa, in a number of very, very important uh, countries. So there's a lot of, uh, at stake. Uh, now, it, no election comes close to the global relevance that the U.S. election will have. Um, and here I have to say that I'm very, very concerned. I mean, if you ask me what are the, the, the big uh, stories that are cause of concern in terms of the future of democracy, I have to say that very close to the top is what's happening with democracy in the U.S. because whatever happens in the U.S. ends up having global implications. I mean, think of the, the assault on the, on the Capitol on January the 6th. You know, there were copycat uh, examples in places like Brazil uh, later on. Uh, the rhetoric that Donald Trump used to delegitimize the electoral result in 2020 has been copied in many, many places, has been copied in Peru, has been copied in Israel, has been copied. Uh, when, you, when you look at the, the statements made by the generals in Myanmar, when they canceled the election that took place just before the coup that happened there uh, three years ago, those statements uh, are, you know, almost verbatim uh, copies of the stuff that Trump uh, that Trump said in the U.S. So whatever happens in the U.S. has global implications. And, and the picture that is uh, emerging from, from the U.S. is not a pretty one. And that's regardless, regardless of the electoral result. Let me, let me tell you. I mean, of course, from the perspective of democracy, I think a, a, a Trump victory would be catastrophic, as in so many other ways but even even if the forces of sanity and light prevail it, the, the trends are not good i mean the runaway levels of polarization the proliferation of election denialism it, you know it, it it is it is a cause for for concern i mean the, i really i really don't see any serious effort to turn the workings of the U.S. political system, which is extraordinarily dysfunctional. Well, you'll have to come back. We'll have to get you back okay. at the end of uh, after the election, Kevin, to make sense of it. And I would be very glad to next year. God knows what do the situation will be. Finally, finally, um, you've presented democracy versus authoritarianism as reason versus the gut. We now have AI, which seems to represent or reflect a, a higher form of reason. Can AI help with all this? We're, we're on the verge of what Kissinger and Eric Schmidt call the age of AI. I don't think many people would disagree with that. All the new technology is built around artificial intelligence. Can AI help in this confrontation between reason and, and the gut when it comes to politics? Or might it only compound all the forces that so concern you? Uh, it can help uh, or not. We don't know. It's too early. It's too early to tell. Uh, I I'm rather concerned about some of the 
some of the manifestations and implications. Think about, for example, the proliferation of deep fakes that is, is happening as we speak. And we're going to see a lot of that, uh, particularly during the 2024 uh, election in the, in the U.S. So it's too early, it's too early to, to tell. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic about the effect that this, this will have. Uh, but one good thing that seems to be happening is that at least over the past year or so, we've seen a very deliberate effort to set in motion some sort of regulation of AI. We've seen, the, for example, the executive order that the Biden administration put out is fairly comprehensive, fairly detailed. There's some serious thought that went into that. We see what's happening in the, in the European Union with regards to the regulation of AI. Uh, that's that's a positive sign. I mean, at least we are making an effort not to let this uh, developed in a you know in a random way that escapes the control of uh, a, of democracy and of human agency.